0: Let's turn in our Bibles together to Galatians chapter 5 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Galatians together. This morning we're going to pick up in verse 13 and make our way down through verse 18 as we continue on here in our study in Galatians together. If you are turned to that spot, let me begin reading here in verse 13. It says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And Father, we just humbly ask for just your grace and your help right now as we continue in our worship by opening the Word of God together. Lord, we just ask that you would prepare us accordingly and that we would each truly have an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to us as this part of your church through this particular portion of your word this morning we ask every intent behind why you inspired these very scriptures originally would just find its way and speak into our hearts in a very personal and direct way in this very day that we find ourselves studying it together so please lord prepare us and as always we ask by your spirit Speak to us now that we might hear your voice telling us what we need to hear, and we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, an important question to answer in our life is, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? Whether it is recognized or not, or honestly whether we are willing to admit it's true, the reality is everybody serves someone. Everybody serves someone. In the most basic sense, we either honestly serve ourselves, that is, we live in somewhat of a self-indulgent way, self-serving, or the only other option really, ultimately, is to choose to serve God, to serve our Creator, the one who made us and gave our life to us. And by serving God, we choose to follow the Lord and fulfill His will and His purposes. And really, I think that's kind of what Paul's challenge is here in this particular text, for us to be serving God instead of serving ourselves. To be serving God so honestly, that we're not serving ourselves, because that's what we're naturally inclined to do is to serve ourselves if we don't have someone else to serve. And we're going to see that this can be greatly measured by how we relate to and how we treat people. Dependent upon how we are treating others is often a clear indication of who we're actually serving. And this is we're going to see where our letter starts to become very practical. As Paul transitions from this point through the remainder of chapter six, closing out the letter, he starts to really get into the nuts and the bolts of Christian living. I think this section of scripture is very basic in its explanation of just concepts of what Christian living really looks like. Okay, I understand doctrines of what it means to be a Christian and salvation and these kind of things. But when it comes to practical issues, nuts and bolts of what does it mean to live out a Christian life... This is really what these passages we're looking at today and in the weeks ahead are going to be addressing. Learning how to properly exercise our freedom to walk in the Spirit, to let our life be led by the Spirit of God in just day-to-day living in personal daily choices and how we handle our practical affairs so that we're not living sinfully and selfishly, but instead living in a way that is according to the Spirit of God, serving God and His purposes. Again, remember, the emphasis of this letter has been seeking to help followers of Jesus realize that genuine and healthy Christianity or a spiritual life is not living governed by a checklist, where we kind of take someone else's ideas or maybe we create our own set of ideas and we kind of have a spiritual checklist, a religious group of uh, requirements and maybe routines, maybe certain things we restrict ourselves from doing because we deem them as unholy or unspiritual. And then other things that we think are absolutely necessary if we're going to be holy or going to be spiritual. And this letter has sought to combat the idea that we're to live by rules and requirements in order to be right with God initially or to somehow become more holy or righteous before God. Instead, it has been strongly encouraging that we would be guided by relationship with God personally, letting our life be ruled by the Spirit of God who dwells inside of us once we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And certainly, We follow the authority of the written Word of God, and we don't ever want to negate that. We we want to make sure we keep doing that. Remember Paul said in just a few uh, verses ago, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? And that should always govern the way we make decisions and how we determine things as a Christian. What does the Scripture say? That's our ultimate authority. But yet nonetheless, we realize God's Spirit is working inside of us, and we don't live by the, the letter of a law we instead live by being led by the law of the spirit of life who governs our heart now as a christian and yielding to the rulership of the spirit of god working within us what to do and what not to do what is god's will and what's not god's will and paul wants us to understand god did not save us from sin nor from satan's power to make us just good religious rule keepers God saved us and set us free that we might be free to have a relationship with him in a very personal and an intimate way. So notice with me, verse 13, Paul begins this next section saying there, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Again, he speaks of a condition that we as believers are now in a condition of liberty. He's referring to a position, you might say spiritually, that has been given to us when we were invited into our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that when God adopted us spiritually, and we've talked about that in this letter, that's what happened. God adopted us as his spiritual child. He chose to make us one of his children by a work that transpires of his spirit within our our life when we receive Jesus Christ as savior and lord we become a child of god his spirit enters in and in that relationship we are liberated from things that are controlling influences in our life and god wants his children to be able to live in freedom you notice again he uses the term there in verse 13 brethren and that's a that's a family term brethren a spiritual family term that we are brothers and sisters in christ brothers and sisters in the lord god is our father we have a family relationship so paul says my brothers my sisters god wants his children to be free from things ruling over them to be liberated that they might have the freedom to be led by the spirit of God himself who dwells within us, that we can follow the Spirit's voice giving us direction in our life. Again, remember Paul's declaration back at the beginning of this chapter we saw last time together in verse 1 of chapter 5. He said there, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. In our salvation experience, Jesus Christ has made us now free spiritually. And he says, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So since this truth is our foundation spiritually, it is our position now of liber- liberation in Christ. Paul's restating this again here in verse 13, almost for emphasis sake, that this is the spirituality. We have been called to liberty but notice he then goes on to say, verse 13, only, however, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So notice we have not been liberated that we might have freedom to be selfish freedom to be self-indulgent in sinful behaviors of our flesh, but rather we have been liberated that we might have freedom from human selfishness, freedom from our sin nature controlling us, so that we might instead now lovingly serve people instead of being a self-serving person. This is what Paul is getting to in this section, that living under grace and spiritual liberty was never intended to be abused as a license to sin. That was never God's intention that we would just live selfishly. And, of course, this would be some of the concern of those who would try and challenge Paul. Look, if you keep telling people it's about grace and the grace of God and you emphasize grace too much, well, people are going to take that and misinterpret it and they're going to just use it as a license to just live sinfully and out of control and think that there's no consequences. So Paul here warns against that temptation of potential error in our spiritual reasoning, as he's been talking a lot about grace and spiritual freedom and liberty we have so that we don't have to live in a legalistic manner. That's why he says here in verse 13, look, yes, you've been called to liberty, but he says, look, don't ever use your liberty, he says, as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, important to understand, that word flesh there speaks of our sinful nature that we all have from physical birth. The Bible teaches us that we all are directly, ultimately descendants of Adam, the first man ever created. And if you remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam was created. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He had not only physical life, but spiritual relationship with God. God gave Adam a choice. Adam chose to rebel and disobey God And at that point, Adam lost spiritual life. His spiritual relationship with God died, if you would, that the lights went out spiritually on the inside. Certainly Adam would then die physically, but more importantly, he died spiritually. He lost capacity to have living relationship with God that he once did. And we all understand now are descendants of Adam which means Adam could only pass on to us physically what he himself possessed. And because of that, we have inherited, we might say, the nature of Adam. And the nature of Adam is now a sinful nature. This is what the flesh refers to in the Bible. Your translation may actually render that, the sin nature. That is this inclination that we all have within us, and we all find it, where we are just inclined automatically towards what's wrong. It's almost as if we find within us there's this corrupt inward nature that we've received from birth, from Adam that's there, that is like a magnet drawn towards doing what is wrong, doing towards what is sinful, what is evil, what is selfishness. Uh, that's why as parents, you don't have to teach your kids how to backtalk or to be selfish with their siblings or to misbehave. I don't know how anybody can actually raise a child or children and not believe the doctrine of the scripture that we are born by nature sinful, that we're automatically born to be inclined towards being rebellious, to behave badly. We spend all our time as parents trying to teach them how to behave well and how to correct bad behavior. They already know how to behave bad. And that's simply a testimony of the fact that by nature, we have this thing called the flesh, a sin nature. Romans 5, 12 says, through one man, that's referring to Adam, sin entered the world, and sin and death has spread to all men. So we're born by nature with this nature of Adam that creates in the sin nature a constant desire to think, say, and do what is wrong. That's the natural inclination of the flesh, to be self-serving, to satisfy ourselves, and we wrestle with this within ourselves, and the flesh, or sin nature, never leaves us. It never departs from us until we depart from this physical body that we're stuck within at the day of our death, or ultimately when Jesus returns and takes us out of this world. So we have this nature of Adam. Now, when a person receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord— and a spiritual conversion happens, it's at that point when we receive Christ's rulership, we're saved from sin's punishment and from sin's power, and we receive a new nature. And this is what Paul's now going to build upon going forward, that the Christian receives a new spiritual nature, awakened within the nature of the Spirit of Christ, that is seeking to help us to overcome the sin nature, or the flesh, and to live Differently, now we have the freedom with the new nature spiritually within us to resist the flesh to resist the sin nature and do what the spirit once said, which is to serve God now, Paul cautions us here, therefore, to never let ourselves make the mistake of Understanding our our position in Christ by faith and that we're saved by grace and, and that we know that we're forgiven freely by just trusting in Jesus Christ and that whenever we fail, we can just confess our sin and ask forgiveness. And Paul says, look, don't ever abuse that gracious offer in an unappreciative way. Where you start to then sort of distort grace, whereby he says here you actually begin to use that understanding of liberty and grace as an opportunity for the flesh. That is where you kind of see this spiritual standing as kind of a free pass to indulge your sin nature and just get away with it. Well, I'll just ask forgiveness afterwards, or I'm, I'm, I know I'm in a position of grace, so I kind of have some free passes because God is so gracious, thinking that the grace of God gives you an opportunity to behave badly or to indulge sin. That somehow we have a license to kind of be able to do what's wrong either periodically or do what's wrong constantly, and it's kind of just okay because of this wonderful thing called grace. Paul's saying here, God forbid that horrible mentality. If it ever creeps into our own mind and we start to believe that, or if anyone else tries to feed us that reality. Notice the Holy Spirit commands right here in the Word of God in verse 13, do not do that. Don't use your liberty and understanding of grace as an opportunity to satisfy or indulge your flesh. Again, the word opportunity speaks of the freedom or access to have a chance to be able to do something. And what Paul no doubt is saying is, look, God would not let Jesus suffer and Jesus be crucified and die to give us a chance to indulge sin. That'd be the furthest thing from God's mind, that God would let Jesus endure what he did to offer us grace that somehow now we have an opportunity or chance to just sin whenever we feel like it. The, another translation renders this, don't let your freedom be an incentive to your flesh and an excuse for selfishness. See, the bottom line is, we have been freed from sin ruling us. We're not free to sin because we understand grace we've been freed from sin we've not been freed to be able to sin and participate in sin and just ask forgiveness afterwards that would be an utter abuse of the grace of God and a distortion of what God understands that only shows a person doesn't understand grace and doesn't understand what it took for Jesus to supply the grace of God that he has been giving to us that's just a tragic distortion in our spiritual reasoning If that would begin to ever happen, such a person is self-deceived by their sin nature to think that that's an acceptable thing. The reason Paul no doubt is cautioning against this is because some people will do this at times. They will begin to see the Christian liberty or the grace of God as a loophole to live sinful and to at times just use that as a way to excuse their selfishness and to indulge sin. In fact, the writer of Jude himself says this in his letter, Jude 1 4, it speaks of those who turn the grace of God into a license for immorality, that is, an allowance to live immoral lives. And look, let me say today is it possible that you have been doing this? Is it possible that your deep, understanding of grace and this wonderful thing of having freedom and if we fail we can just confess our sins and the lord will forgive is it possible that you have perhaps began to turn the grace of god wonderful as it is into sort of in a distorted way a license for your practicing of sin for your participating in some wrong behavior if so look that is wrong and it needs to be repented of The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 cautions those who sin willfully, not periodically slipping and making a mistake. We all do that. But those who sin willfully, knowingly, with a conscious awareness they're doing it after they've been enlightened with spiritual knowledge, he says this, how much more severely do you think someone doing that deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who is treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Look, folks, beware that you never trample over Christ to go pursue some sin, that you never step upon Jesus to start stepping towards and chasing after some sinful indulgence, whatever that may be, or to use an excuse to justify why you can live in a a sexually sinful relationship outside of marriage or continue to watch pornography or abuse substances or just be a a selfish and mean and nasty person or continue to nurse your bitterness that you don't want to let go of and genuinely forgive someone. Look, uh, sin is sin. And we should never use an excuse to justify that we can continue to do what's wrong. To do that, he says, what we are doing is we are insulting the spirit of grace. I don't want to insult the spirit of grace. So we have to be careful, all of us, to guard against this subtle temptation to want a free pass to indulge sin in our moments of weakness. Now, Paul gives us good advice here. He instructs us the proper response to using our liberty in the second half of the verse. He says, look, don't use liberty as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but here's the counterbalance. He says, rather, through love, serve one another. See, at one point, we were slaves of our selfishness. That's our natural tendency, to be selfish, to to be self-indulgent and self-serving. Yet Christ has liberated us from that, We were set free. Christ has made us free from this utter selfish nature that ruled over our life before Jesus gave us his power to be set free. We were in bondage to our selfishness. We were, in a sense, prisoner to our own self-serving attitudes, just self-serving ourselves because that's what's natural. But now he says, you've been set free. So use that freedom to let the power of God within you give you love instead to help other people and to be more other-centered rather than self-centered. We've been freed up from sin's power and even from maintaining the law, Paul's saying to divert our attention elsewhere. Rather than being focused on serving ourselves, we can now put our attention on other people and resist the natural tendency that once controlled us with its power to be someone who just pleased ourselves and lived utterly selfish. We've been freed from Christ to live different than everyone else in the world naturally lives and the way that we once lived by nature from birth. We should use our freedom now to be other-centered, to live like our Lord Jesus did, Who in love served other people and to let the love of Christ within us be continually poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit working in us to prompt us, Paul says, to serve one another. What a wonderful thing that we have been given opportunity to be set free from our self-centeredness, to have the opportunity to actually live differently now than others in the world do. And see, that's what we have the privilege to do as a Christian. Many people look at the Christian life, oh, that's so restrictive, that's so, you people are slaves and bondage to your religious lifestyle. The reality is quite the opposite. I'm not a slave, I'm free. I don't have to get drunk any longer. I don't have to live immorally and selfishly and sinfully constantly the way that I once did and live a self-centered life. I don't have to constantly be giving in to outbursts of wrath and violence and anger. I've been set free now. I have the freedom to live differently, the freedom to live in in victory over those self-consuming attitudes and natures that everyone else doesn't have the power to overcome when they don't have the Lord. We have the power now to live like Jesus and to live like our Lord who put others first. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom that is to benefit other people. The question becomes, where is our focus? The spiritual truth says that's how we should be living now. We should live in a loving way to serve other people. And I just want to encourage all of us, look, let's take this instruction in God's word and try and live it out this week, to not just be a a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And to look for ways, instead of serving ourselves in the natural fleshly nature, to refrain from living selfishly, instead to let love working within us by the Spirit show us how we might serve others around us. And what might that look like for you in your world right now? How might you in love serve one another? In your household, maybe those God puts in your path. Paul says, verse 14, for all the law, remember, that was their concern. We have to go back to the Mosaic law and follow it. Paul says, look, all of the law is actually fulfilled in this one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says to us here, showing love by serving one another, which is what he just said in verse 13. Showing love by serving one another actually, says, ends up fulfilling in that one thing the essence of what the law is all about. The essence of God's law, really, the, the crux of the matter, was about love. And this is what Paul is trying to state here. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, which instructs us there in Leviticus 19 in the law to love our neighbor as ourself. And Paul now quotes from that, and he says, look, if and when we do this, we're actually fulfilling, ultimately, what the entirety of all the law is about. All the other commands, all the other instructions in the law, they're all based upon this reality of exercising love in how we would relate to one another. Interesting, remember, Jesus himself chose to simplify the spiritual life by quoting this exact same portion of scripture from the Old Testament law. Jesus himself wanted to show that what truly mattered most to God and what having a healthy spiritual life was about was not routinely keeping a list of rituals following sets of requirements and checking off boxes of good duties. Well, I do this and I check off. I don't do that like other people do. Yet all the while, you can be a religious rule keeper and have absolutely no heart towards God. There are lots of people all over this planet. Maybe that was some of us at one point in our time who they are, are extremely religious They do a set of good works. They know when to stand up and sit down. They know what requirements and rituals to perform, and they check all the boxes religiously with great devotion, but yet all the while... There's no real heart for God in it. It's just a bunch of duties they perform, maybe to appease their conscience morally or because they think it's the right thing to do. And some of the same people who may be very, very religious, at the same time also are very unloving and unkind towards people. And Jesus said, look, that's what the Pharisees were doing even in that day. He said, that's not what God desires. Remember, they came to Jesus and they asked him, Teacher, tell us what command of God matters most. That is, which of the law, of all the law, which commandment matters most? And you remember what Jesus answered. We're told that Jesus answered in Mark chapter 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, in these two hang all the law and the prophets. There's no other commandment Jesus had greater than these. In other words, Jesus simplified spiritual life. And he said, look, rather than get caught up in all the complexities and keep all your religious, you know, checklists and try and do all these things. He said, look, just love God supremely. Love God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. In other words, what's he saying? God doesn't want rules. He wants relationship. Just love God. You know, one time, I believe it was Augustine, they asked, how do I know God's will? How do we do God's will? And he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and then do whatever you want, because if you love God supremely, you're going to do what's pleasing to God because you love him so much. And Jesus said, after you love God supremely, the second most important thing is this, love your neighbor as yourself. That is, love people, love God supremely, and then secondarily, as you're experiencing that love between you and God, show God's love to others and love people around you. Remember, they even asked Jesus, well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? What's this mean, love your neighbor is love yourself? And remember, go and check it out, Luke chapter 10, that is where Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And he said, look, let me show you, and you read Luke chapter 10, you can make that your homework assignment, what it means to love your neighbor. And in essence, what the bottom line is, showing love by serving those the Lord puts into our path in our life. They may be people we don't want to engage with, people who may be in difficult situations. We may want to just kind of selfishly do our thing and brush past people. And loving our neighbor, your neighbor is the person closest to you, the person that is in a sense close and nearby. And that may look like starting to show a little more love in our own household starting to show love with those closest to us, those in our job, those we interact with, and the people that God brings into our path sometimes that we never expected he was going to bring into our path, but God brings them in our path and he says, there they are, love them. Show them love in practical ways. Demonstrate the love of God. Please take notice and don't miss this. From God's perspective, genuine spirituality is measured by how we treat people. You might fairly say, as Paul says, all the laws summarized in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can almost sense the heart of the Holy Spirit there saying, from God's perspective, genuine spirituality, real spirituality is measured by how I treat other people, by how you relate to other people. It's not necessarily measured by how much we read our Bible, though that's a good thing. It's not measured by how much we attend religious meetings or spiritual gatherings. It's not measured by how much we sing worship songs or how many Bible verses we can quote. Nor is it measured by how many just good works that we do or our spiritual routines. Those in right relationship with God, first and foremost, will treat people properly. They will treat people with the heart of God, showing love, being sacrificial and servant-hearted because they will be rightly related towards people. The evidence of a heart of love is inclined to serve others. Again, I encourage you, John chapter 13, Jesus demonstrated that as the perfect man in the clearest way. It says, having loved his own, he showed them the full extent of his love. And what did Jesus do? Humble servanthood. He washed the filthy, dirty feet of the disciples that day. Again, humble, sacrificial servanthood was a way to demonstrate love. The the demonstration of true spirituality is often measured most by simply how we treat other people around us. So Paul says then, verse 15, "...but if you bite and devour one another," he says, "...beware, lest you be consumed by one another." So here Paul identifies, you might say, the opposite behavior." of what a spirit-filled Christian who is full of love and focused on serving other people, he says this is the opposite behavior and what that looks like. And the picture he uses there in verse 15 is someone who may want to give the impression that they're spiritual outwardly, they want to look like they're a spiritual person, but yet nonetheless, they're behaving in an utterly self-serving way, but by in a sense, Feeding themselves by hurting other people through their selfish behavior. He speaks of someone here who's biting and devouring other people, hurtfully chewing up other people, feeding upon in some strange way their own appetite by being cruel or maybe over authoritarian, abusing their authority, taking advantage of people through mistreatment. And apparently, this must have been happening in the churches. Among some people, because Paul addresses it here by the Holy Spirit. And look, sadly, this still can happen today. Where even among God's people, there are those who want to give the impression that they are spiritual, but yet they're biting and devouring other people around them. And they're consuming the lives of other people. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? We we use terms like chewing somebody out. Boy, that's a vivid picture there. Where do you think that came? It was God's idea before someone else's chewing somebody out that is verbally using our words in hurtful speech and anger to speak in ways that are just kind of mean and abusive verbally Uh, speaks of you know uh, even in the church realm Uh, let me just say i think sometimes even as christians we have a heart to want to speak the truth and stand up for righteousness and we should the bible tells us to speak the truth in love We are at times to correct one another, to rebuke each other, to challenge somebody, to speak truth and share light when we see something sinful and unrighteous, to speak against what's wrong. But sometimes, as God's people, we speak the truth, but there's a complete absence of love. There's a self-righteousness or kind of a harshness, and we speak the truth, but there's no love mixed together with it. And we can actually be rather strong in our words where we're kind of almost biting and devouring people by speaking harshly true things, but yet the tone or the attitude it's conveyed in is very hurtful. You know, again, I think of another term we often use, we talk about backbiting. Paul says here, biting and devouring one another. And again, backbiting is what? It's speaking about someone behind their back and using what? Critical statements The idea is just slandering someone else, criticism, speaking about someone to other people in a backbiting way. And again, Christians sometimes even mask and disguise this as prayer requests. Well, I just want to share these things with you so that you can be praying for him or praying for them as a family. And look, I I can't read everyone's heart, but the bottom line is sometimes as God's people, we can make the mistake and I think almost be somewhat deceived in our own sinful nature where we start to kind of backbite and we can become very very guilty of criticism as the lord's people we have to be very careful sometimes we can slip into criticism quite quickly and start biting and devouring and and even if it's just some people even selfishly kind of taking advantage of someone else and bringing harm and ruin to their life and notice paul gives the caution here in verse 15 he says look if you let that go unchecked In your life, or you let it go unchecked and not repented of among God's people, he says it is utterly destructive. You see what he says, verse 15? He says, if you bite and devour one another instead of in love serving one another, he says, beware lest you end up being consumed, destroyed, ruined by one another. If allowed, selfishness in various forms can destroy lives. Honestly, it can completely kind of destroy an entire church if selfishness is left unchecked. Let me put an image in your mind. I want to say this. Beware of cannibal Christians. Beware of those who claim to be Christians, and maybe even some of them are Christians, but they become a little bit cannibalistic, and they tend to be individuals who, with their mouths, tend to hurt and harm and even destroy people or who tend to just, by their nature, kind of have an appetite with their own sinful tendencies to kind of take advantage of people and devour what's good in someone else's life for some self-serving way themselves. And they take advantage of people. Uh, Look, nothing is more tragic when the devil deceives people to behave in such a way, when God's family acts in proud and selfish ways that ruin the lives of others or ruin the life of a whole fellowship. And I just want to say, if you ever see this, kind of this Christian cannibalism, look for a way to put a muzzle on a person like that as quickly as possible. And if ever you find yourself convicted by the Holy Spirit for being guilty of doing such, just admit it. Take ownership of it and be quick to put an end to it and seek to bring healing, maybe to those you've bitten and devoured, maybe with your words or done something harmful to to make reconciliation and restitution. Paul says, verse 16, I say then, walk, he says, in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, as I said, look how Paul's becoming very, very practical now. These things are going to bring us into some really wonderful verses ahead of us as we carry on in this book. This here, verse 16, Paul says, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, I think is perhaps one of the most valuable and one of the most important verses in the scripture regarding practical Christian living. It explains to us in verse 16, the utter simplicity of how to avoid and cease from sinful behavior and how instead to live godly. Paul says there, verse 16, walk in the spirit. Now, when the Bible uses the term walk, it's an analogy, a metaphor for being led or directed in your life. That word walk speaks of one's way of life. That is the direction they're headed in, the steps that you're taking. It speaks of your lifestyle or the path that you're pursuing. That's your walk. And Paul says here, walk in the spirit. That is, walk in a manner whereby you are under the direction of the Spirit. You are headed in the direction of the things that align with God's Spirit, that that cooperate with serving God and the steps that you're taking. So he says, if you let your life be guided by the Spirit, he says, you will find, look at it, verse 16, you'll find then you're not fulfilling the desires, the appetites, of your flesh that is your sin nature that wants to be gratified again inside of the believer the genuine christian who's been saved and now filled with the holy spirit inside of the christian there are now two natures battling for control within us battling for control of my thoughts of my words of my appetites Over my behavior. And these two work in complete opposition to one another, these two natures, causing conflict in how they function, because they function in completely diametrically opposed ways. Uh, The best way that I can illustrate this, I actually was someone who really loved anatomy and physiology and at one point was kind of wanting to go down that path before the Lord called and redirected me, but I had an incredible fascination with the human body and muscles. And we have in our body a thing called an antagonistic muscle group. For example, in your arm, you have antagonistic muscles. Within the same arm, you have a bicep and a tricep. And they're enclosed within the same arm, but they're antagonistic muscles. The idea is that each muscle works in direct opposition to the other. So when the bicep is flexed, the tricep must be relaxed and vice versa. When the tricep is being used, the bicep must be relaxed, and they do completely opposite functions. One pulls, one pushes. Well, these antagonistic muscles, though within the same arm, have totally different functions, and they work in antagonistic ways to one another. Well, that's a very fitting picture of the Spirit of God and the flesh or the sin nature within the believer. Within your life, you have your sinful nature, your flesh, and you also have the spirit working within you. And they function in opposition to one another. You cannot be walking in the spirit and at the same time be living in or walking in the flesh. It's impossible. You're only able to do one or the other. So if you're living in the flesh, you cannot be walking in the spirit. In the same way, you can't be flexing your bicep and using your tricep at the same time. And this is a very fitting analogy, I think, because it applies to our lives. If you're trying to avoid sin, if you want to avoid sin, I don't want to sin anymore. I want to walk in a way that pleases God. I want to serve God and not serve myself and my sin nature. Well, look, the Bible says it's very simple. If you just consciously, proactively make efforts to walk in the Spirit, you can't be walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh at the same time. So God says here, look, let me simplify it. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't be fulfilling the desires of your flesh. If you focus on walking in the Spirit and what that includes, you'll be preoccupied with walking in the Spirit, focused on the things of the Spirit, desiring the things that the Spirit is directing you to do, and you'll be unable to be distracted by giving in to your sinful nature because you'll be so preoccupied and busy with living in the Spirit. You'll find that you are not distracted, and the reason is because you're engaged living in the Spirit intentionally. So this is great wisdom. Do you want to just stay on track? Do you want to stay safe and away from sin and say, look, I don't want to enter into sin. I want to live a life that pleases God. Well, look, the Bible just says just be conscious and proactive and intentionally try and live in the Spirit. And if you constantly seek to live in the Spirit, it will safeguard you from indulging the things of the flesh. It'll help you stay on track in serving God. Now, on the other side of that, let's say you're trying to stop sinning. Maybe you've been struggling with some area of sin in your life and really wrestling with an area of your flesh, and you want to repent of it, you want to be set free of it. You want to stop sinning and you want to start doing what's righteous instead. Verse 16 is the key. He says, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of your flesh. In other words, it's not just about trying hard to stop and focusing all your attention on refraining from the sin. That may be one part of it, but if that's all you do, that's not going to be sufficient. He says, "Look, you can't just try and refrain from sin. Rather, he says, just be more intentional about trying to focus on walking in the Spirit. Stop thinking about I'm going to count to ten so I don't blow my top. I'm going to count." To, no, he says, just try and walk in the Spirit as much as you can intentionally every day. Read your Bible, pray, yield to the things of the Spirit, focus on the things of the Spirit, put all your effort and passion there. And you'll find the appetite for the sin decreases. You'll find your attention to be distracted by the sin will begin to diminish. It's often been said before: how do you overcome a passion? By a greater passion. By a greater passion. You know, we see this all the time. Somebody falls in love with somebody, and all the things they used to be very interested and in actively involved doing, they don't do anymore. Why? Because their passion changed. <laughs> now their love is so much devoted to this new person, their interests changes their entire lifestyle so you walk in the spirit focus on walking in the spirit and you'll find you'll start to stop fulfilling the desires of your flesh as much and you'll begin to have victory over sin paul indicates the reality of this ongoing battle again in verse 17 he says for the flesh lusts against the spirit the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another he says that's why at times you don't do the things That you wish. Notice there's always going to be this internal struggle, and this is the case for every Christian. Important to realize this we have to understand and be aware there is this conflict that goes on inside of us. You are not crazy. If, as a Christian, you're thinking, Why do I still struggle and wrestle? Look, that's actually a good thing. Spurgeon used to say, Dead men don't wrestle. If somebody's spiritually dead, they don't wrestle, they just give in to their sin nature. It's when you're spiritually alive. Then you start to wrestle. Now you're trying to resist those old desires, those old sinful tendencies, and it's important to understand that there's this constant battle for rulership going on inside of you, between the flesh and the spirit. Other translators rendered these verses this way. We says, "...the evil nature constantly has a strong desire to suppress the spirit." The spirit constantly has a strong desire to suppress the evil nature." And these are entrenched in an attitude of mutual opposition to one another so that you may at times not do the things that you desire to. Again, there's this battle within the Christian where you always kind of feel conflicted. That's normal. Good to recognize that's going to be normal to the day you go home to be with the Lord where you're constantly deciding, am I going to serve myself and my sinful nature Or am I going to choose to serve the spirit of God and serve God by yielding and letting my life be ruled by the spirit rather than being ruled over by my fleshly sinful nature? That struggle is so normal. Even Paul himself admitted and discussed that reality in great depth in Romans chapter seven. And I encourage you to read Paul's words there as he describes this inward battle. Paul says, I don't know what I'm doing The things I don't want to do. Those are the things that I end up doing sometimes. And the things that I do want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And I, I find this struggle within me where there's a part of me that wants to do what's right and good and godly, but then there's this whole other part of me inside that is trying to redirect my attention to doing what's sinful and rebellious against God. And to disregard God's authority. And he says there's this battle within where Paul, remember, he ultimately says, O wretched man that I am. I know that in me in my flesh, he says, nothing good dwells there. Wretched man that I am. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in other words, notice, Paul didn't say what will deliver me. He didn't say what set of principles, what ten or five-step programs are out there. What, what principles, if I follow, Paul says, who? will deliver me that is a relational dependence upon the power of jesus christ who gives us the power of his spirit that's what helps us overcome this conflict and that's what paul concludes with in verse 18 where he says but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law see paul says the conflict is real the battle inside but he says how do we overcome the conflict He says it's not by a rule or some set of rules or some group of laws that regulate us. He says it's by properly relating to God, by letting our lives be led by the spirit instead of led by the flesh or any set of rules and laws. The language is literally if you're willing to be led by the spirit, you don't need to live under obligation to the Mosaic law. In other words, The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us here, if we learn to live in relationship with God, we don't need to necessarily be governed and controlled by a bunch of rules and restrictions and codes and requirements. You know, again, the way I think of that is when a child is young and immature, they may need to have a a fenced-in area in the backyard. You may have to have child safety locks in the house because they don't know how to make good decisions. But when the child matures... Then you don't need the child safety locks because when they mature, they have proper reasoning that they shouldn't drink the poison. Then they can go in the front yard where there's no fence and they won't run out into traffic and harm themselves because when they mature, they don't need all the boundaries and restrictions controlling their behavior. Well, this is what Paul's saying. If you allow yourself to learn to be led by the spirit, you don't need laws and rules and regulations because you'll yield to what the spirit is directing you to do. Hey, important question. Today, what are you being led by foremost? What is leading your life? Are you leading your life by letting your feelings direct you, your thoughts direct you, your sin nature direct you, or are you letting yourself learn how to be led by the Spirit? Let yourself be led by the Spirit, and you will serve God's purposes and God's will. Look, we all as a Christian now have this glorious freedom to choose who you will allow yourself to be led by I encourage you choose wisely don't let yourself be led by feelings thoughts emotions and desires of your sin nature let yourself be led by the spirit of God who will direct you to serve God himself would you pray